Hello and welcome to the latest episode of TI Talk Supply Chains. I'm your host, Kirsty Adams. Today we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, global e-commerce, Apple in India, among other things. And we're going to do that with two of my colleagues. Ken Lyon is here to talk about technology trends. He's the technology advisor to TI Insights. You met him before in the first episode, remember? Ken has been working in the logistics tech sector for hundreds of years. He's the managing director of a company called Virtual Partners. He's a CILT fellow and a key member of TI's advisory board. He's also highly skilled in scaring the living daylights out of people with his logistics tech commentary. See if you spot his reference to being squished to death thanks to the remote control of containers. What I really like about talking to Ken is that he forces me to lower my resistance to new technology and to new ideas. Hopefully he helps you do that as well. Ken and I don't manage to cover all of his tech trends for 2023, but you can access them in a white paper, which is free, and the link to which is in the show notes. Once Ken is done with you, we're going to have a conversation with analyst Nia Hudson. Nia is going to talk about the global e-commerce logistics market. It may have shrunk by 5% in 2022, but it is expected to moderate and grow by 7.9% in 2023. Nia recently completed our e-commerce report with her team. Again, there is a link to this report in the show notes. Okay, one more thing before I let Ken loose. As you know, the global shortage of drivers is one of the most pressing issues facing the road transport industry. Our partner, IRU, the World Road Transport Organization, has been conducting an annual survey since 2019 to monitor it and to investigate the causes, but also to identify solutions. It would be very, very helpful if you could participate in the 2023 survey. As a thank you, all survey participants will receive a free copy of the 2023 Global Driver Shortage Report. I have added the link to the survey in the show notes, of course. Please do complete it when you've got a bit of time. Okay, over to Ken. What surprises have there been so far in 2023, Ken, around technology trends in the supply chain sector? Anything that shocked you so far? Not shocked, but... I suppose I should should use the word surprise, but it's uh, I've seen this so many times that I shouldn't be, but I always am. The the furore that's been whipped up around the um, generative artificial intelligence, you see it in the mainstream media now because attention has sort of focused on that and interest has caught fire around the world, and you're starting to deal with concepts and implementations that are phenomenally complicated under the skin and the implications of this stuff being adopted widely has yet to be seriously understood. What impact will that have on supply chain strategy? Well, 
if we look at it this way, everyone's kind of playing around with chat GPT. I don't know if you've done that yet. The capabilities of this tool where you ask it a question and immediately, like within less than a second, you've got a complete essay or explanation or, or something that is made up in front of you. Some people think it takes the work out of thinking. Now, in terms of supply chains where apart from physically moving stuff, it's how you manipulate the information and the data to make sure that that stuff gets moved. But there's an awful lot of mundane drudgery in that. I mean, the industry is built on paperwork and that paperwork has now migrated to the digital realm. But that doesn't mean that it's perfect or because it's digital, it gets better. It doesn't. So the impact artificial intelligence as it gets better will have will be to augment and help with decision making and decision support for supply chain managers. In the worst case is it tries to do that but provides all the wrong information. So supply chains get screwed up only they happen at a much 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 faster rate <laughs> which makes it much more difficult to resolve. Also, people need to appreciate that a well-run supply chain is actually a competitive advantage. Apple, for years, have dominated and executed phenomenally well because of the way their supply chains are designed and operate. Now, there are questions around, can that continue? Because demand is falling for a lot of their products for reasons nothing to do with Apple but also their dependency on China, where a lot of their operations are based. They're trying to start thinking of moving that to India, and they've started to make some moves in India. But it took over 30 years to develop that infrastructure in China, and it's massive, and the Chinese are pretty efficient. India is a completely different culture, a completely different mindset. You've got phenomenally talented people in India, but their approach to life is very different to that of the Chinese. And some of the reports coming through of Apple's early uh, attempts at trying to set up manufacturing facilities in India have not been terribly encouraging. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. It was interesting reading that Emerging Markets report, talking about sort of supply chain competitive advantage there. The different trends that you talk about in the paper, AI, cloud, enterprise IT, facility automation, data standards, which ones are most relevant to having a competitive supply chain in 2023? For a long time, since the internet came into being, I've been utterly convinced that access to internet services should be and should be treated as if it's a utility in the same way as water, electricity and whatever. The cloud has made that aspiration real in the sense that as long as you can get onto the internet, you can access all kinds of computational power, data storage and whatever. Because the internet was set up by design to be open and you could access it from pretty much anywhere. Well, as reality has overtaken that naive aspiration, you're starting to find that various clouds provided by the different vendors 
Google, Microsoft, Amazon, which is the biggest by far, they're starting to be split up. And if you're trying to run a global supply chain or any kind of global operation, you've taken for granted that no matter where you are in the world, you can make a connection and get back to your applications and your data. That is not necessarily guaranteed now. China for a long time have operated what they call the Great Chinese Firewall, where any kind of digital information going into and out of the territory of China is controlled and monitored by the government. So if you're a manufacturing company that manufactures in China, but also manufactures elsewhere, and you want to run one manufacturing system, which makes sense, you host that system in the cloud. And let's say you're using Microsoft's Azure web services. If you're in China and you want to get onto your manufacturing system hosted on Azure in America, you can't. The Chinese have allowed Microsoft and the other cloud vendors to set up cloud services inside China. But those services have to be co-owned by a Chinese company and only in very, very specific cases are those instances allowed to communicate with the global instances outside of China. Although it's possible you get permission from the government and you connect it directly to a system in America, the performance is so bad and constrained that it's unusable. So you're going to use the local service and you hope that at some point data sharing can be made effective between the Chinese instance and your parent company's instance in America. That's just one example. But other countries are now starting to think about doing this. And so geopolitics is now becoming the primary determinant for any logistics and supply chain management company trying to operate global supply chains. When companies are looking to adopt or enhance or establish any kind of technological strategy, these are factors which they never imagined they'd have to consider. Are we likely to see, and I think this is what you're saying, this sort of this great firewall of China, the great Chinese firewall, is that the sort of thing we could see in Russia and other countries that we may not be friendly with? There are ways around this, but they're expensive. So, for example, you've got Elon Musk um, with SpaceX, which is a phenomenal achievement. They've set up Starlink and uh, tens of thousands of satellites now orbiting the Earth. But as long as you've got a Starlink base station, which are very inexpensive, like 400, 500 quid, if that, you can then get online wherever you are. Um, but Starlink themselves can turn on and turn off coverage in certain regions. The UK politician William Hague made a very good point earlier in the week that should this power be in the hands of a single individual, irrespective of how talented they may be, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure anyone does know the answer to that. So all of these factors we're having to navigate through and people will make mistakes and get it wrong and whatever. So the notion that because it's electric, got flashing lights on it and all the rest of it, 
if you've got the right size batteries, everything's perfect. No, well, you're going to find a lot of problems. And if you're trying to manage global supply chains, it's another layer of complexity. Hi, I'm Michael, Head of Commercial at TI Insights. I just wanted to interrupt for 30 seconds to tell you a bit more about TI's research and data. TI's research is devised to show you what's happening in the market today. That includes the changes to expect over the next year and the outlook for the industry for the next five to 10 years. This research is delivered with a mix of quantitative forecasts and qualitative insights. Our data platform, GSCI, empowers senior leaders at global logistics companies with the strategic intelligence they need to move their business forward. Okay, well, maybe that was slightly longer than 30 seconds. Forgive me. But if you want to find out more, you can email me on mclover at tiinsight.com or visit www.ti-insight.com. This information is also in the show notes. Back to the artificial intelligence stuff and generative artificial intelligence. So chat GPT is the one that everyone's been talking about. And the fact that Microsoft is now incorporating that into their search technology, into their applications, uh, all of the big players, Google is going to do or is doing the same thing with their application suites. But a lot of this stuff is version one. These companies have been working on their own efforts in this area for years and spending enormous sums of money. And Microsoft didn't so much give up with their own efforts, but when they came across ChatGPT and OpenAI, the company behind it, they said, this is much better than what we've got. Let's adopt this. So they pulled $10 billion out of their back pocket and just shoved it into the company. Um, and said, okay, now we want a partnership, we want to do this, we want to do that. They are going to get much, much, much better. And to give this some context, if you've got a machine learning algorithm and you want it to recognize cats, you'll give it a billion pictures to look at with cats in various shapes, sizes, situations, whatever. And at the end of that process, it will be able to tell you incredibly accurately and very quickly that there's a picture with a cat in it. But the system has no clue what a cat is. As far as the system is concerned, a cat can be a cigarette. I mean, it just it recognizes a shape and a pattern, and that's it. These generative AI systems are now trying to add context to these things. So they're absorbing enormous amounts of data and they're trying to draw inferences from that. And they'll get smarter and smarter and smarter, and the engineers will tweak them and tune them and train them so that they'll be able to do more and more things. Students quickly worked out, this thing can write all my coursework for me. So I'll go down the pub, and within five seconds, this has done all my coursework. So lecturers suddenly discovered that they were getting coursework, which they suspected had been drafted by ChatGPT, but they couldn't prove it. So now they've had to rethink how they design exams and coursework. This is just but one illustration of how society is going to have to adjust to the presence of these things. And do you think people are talking about it? Probably not, because they've got their own dramas to deal with. People under the age of 30, they've grown up in a digital world 
Some of this stuff is even catching them out, but they're, they're just completely comfortable in this world. They're not very good at having conversations as we are, but they're comfortable understanding that digital stuff is the way information should be held. I think that uh, a lot of people don't understand why sometimes you have to question the data and you can't just take trust as a given. And so as companies become more and more and more data orientated, so in the logistics and supply chain realm, sure, physical stuff is moved and controlled by actors in that realm. But the way they control it is by using data and information systems. People need to understand the consequences of what happens when they don't understand what they're doing with the data they're using. If you get, say, someone who's fresh out of college, they're given a task monitoring, I don't know, a yard operation where containers are being moved around. To them, it's just stuff on a screen, which they have to use that. Do they really understand that if they get something wrong or misunderstand something, what the implications are? If you, what you'd like to do is stick them in the middle of Southampton or Felixstowe, watching these giant stacker cranes move around at 30 mile an hour, carrying one or two containers. Heavy, if one of these things goes wrong, you're squished. That's the implications of if you press the wrong button or misunderstand a piece of information. So just relying on, I know systems, I'm comfortable with systems because I've grown up with systems. And if I do this on my cell phone and I swipe left or I swipe right, I get to look at a nice, nice guy or a nice girl. There's no real consequence with that. You swipe right or you swipe left and it's the wrong thing to do in a large system controlling assets. The implications can be slightly more interesting. People aren't taught in schools. The way information systems are used in industry or in the real world, their interaction with the world is through these social networks and they think that's what technology enables you to do in the real world. Whereas if you take them into a control center in the port of Singapore, same kind of screens, same touch interfaces, but as I said, swipe right, happiness, swipe left, total disaster, people die. One of the things that the industry needs to consider, well, not just the logistics industry, but every industry, where you're managing assets digitally, People that are coming into the industry need to understand what that means and the implications of that. Thanks, Ken. That is a really useful insight, as usual. I like how Ken frames some of the hysteria, but he also adds to it. Also, this idea around how these huge containers are being operated in a low-risk environment, but at the same time, and in reality, is very much a high-risk activity that could kill someone lots to think about there. As I mentioned before, the link to the free white paper is in the show notes. Now, over to Nia to discuss the Global E-Commerce Logistics 2023 report. Nia and I actually attended an event last week for the UK Warehousing Association. That's through PLs, retailers, other operators in the UK. One of the speakers, Dr. Walter Boucher from Colliers UK, 
advised the audience that the UK needed a larger logistical footprint for e-commerce expansion. He said that by 2025, 50 million square feet of additional space would be required and 100 million by 2030. I'm not sure the whole room agreed, but it certainly helped to put e-commerce or what's around the corner in perspective. Anyway, over to Nia for a global view of e-commerce. My name's Nia Hudson and I am a team leader for the Value Logistics team at Transport Intelligence. And Nia, which report have you just been working very hard on? We've just published our e-commerce logistics report, so we've been working on that for the past few months. So our latest data from our quant team shows that in 22, the e-commerce logistics market shrank by about 5.2% to a value of 418, 345 million Um, And this was largely due to the fact that volumes and demand just sort of continue to soften in comparison with the peaks that we've seen in the previous years. When we talk about this, we we don't really want to overstate the negativity of it. The market saw a really significant spike in growth during the COVID lockdown. And we like to view these figures as a rebalancing of demand as opposed to anything overly negative, especially with everything that's happening in the, the global economy at the moment. And I think this is really shown by the fact that uh, TI expects the market to grow by 7.9% year on year into 2023. So it's still growing from this higher growth base. E-commerce retail is still expected to grow, even though we've got this sort of softer macroeconomic outlook. And it's expected to recover the losses that it made in 2022 as well, as sort of consumers get a bit more confident in their spending. So that's actually a very useful and positive and powerful statistic at a time when we're seeing quite a lot of negativity in the news. Yeah, definitely. I think when we look at sort of the the levels of 2020 and 2021, obviously that was a really abnormal time for a whole lot of reasons. And the growth rates that this market saw were, you know, they were quite extreme. They were in the sort of late 10s, 20s. So we're looking at a single digit growth next year, which is obviously not quite as extreme, but it's predominantly due to that sort of higher base level that we're comparing it against. And it shouldn't be viewed really as anything negative or a massive slowing. It's just this rebalancing and growing from a higher growth base than it has before. And you mentioned earlier, Nia, before we started recording, that this could have an impact on startups. Yeah, I think when we look at startups and the smaller companies, if we're looking for somebody who might suffer from this, it might possibly be them. As people are sort of tightening their their purse strings, I do think funding for startups will suffer we were talking about we'd already seen an article for a Bristol-based e-fulfillment startup which had had to cut 60 jobs and it had previously been celebrated as a really big success as well. So I think if we are sort of looking for the losers coming into this year, it might be them. Can you share some other key findings which you think our listeners would find helpful? Yeah, one of the more interesting ones is that we've always sort of seen Asia-Pacific as the largest e-commerce logistics market But the results of last year from our data team show that actually it's now North America and we expect this to remain the case for the next five years. And that's mainly due to the fact that China had those those lockdowns, had a quite a big impact on their economy, a really uneven growth last year versus the US, which did a lot better than a lot of people were expecting. I think a mild recession at worst is what they saw, what they're expected to see this year. So sort of those two contrasts have led to the North America region sort of retaining a larger value than Asia Pacific and Europe. What other data is in the report, Nia, which would help supply chain strategists make really key decisions? So our market sizing is also segmented. So we have figures on the market in view of 
domestic and cross-border e-commerce logistics. Um, and then we also take the approach of looking at the market in terms of fulfillment slash warehousing and last mile market contributions to the entire e-commerce logistics market as well. So I think those segments are really, really useful and really, really interesting to look at too. Okay, good. And the report link can be found in the show notes. Okay, so we're going to move on to a key topic, automation. Now, we know that automation spend and labour spend are aligning nicely at the moment. What else can you tell us, Nia, about warehouse automation? There's a very interesting figure that estimates around 60 to 80% of warehouses actually have little or no levels of automation. So I think as, you know, as a market, I think warehouse and robotics is, is an area of real high growth. And it'll only become more utilised as e-commerce progresses because it's needed for e-commerce and it's needed for e-fulfillment. It's needed to meet those sort of customer expectations of quick delivery, quick fulfillment. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, an area of like really high potential. A lot of providers are just investing so heavily in it as well. So if we look at the sort of, you know, just a couple of larger providers and the sort of warehouse robotic solutions, already we see this massive list, especially with DHL. They've got, you know, Locust Picking Robots, Six River Systems, Chuck Robots, Boston Dynamic Stretch Robots. The, the list goes on, really. So it's really, it's a very dynamic area. And I think it's not the end of it yet. I think we're going to see a lot more innovation in the coming years. Right. What are the challenges, Nia? We've got several sort of large retailers um, and logistics providers will you know, publicly commit significant capital towards automation strategies. I think it's possibly GXO that have um, invested in a sort of innovation you know, hub, but it's for smaller online retailers and for smaller providers as well. Without the capital to invest in own logistics networks, there are a lot of challenges that come with that too. So order picking remains a robotic challenge in e-fulfillment. It's still very largely a manual process. Amazon commented before that commercially viable automated picking remains a difficult challenge. So they have been launches of robots that enable automated order picking. You know, they pick the parcels off the pallet and place them into cartons or boxes, but it's still very much in the early stages. So I think looking forward, that will be a place of a lot of innovation as we sort of invest more money in it, e-commerce continues to grow. I think that will be a very high growth area that we'll see in the coming years. And there are other more sort of practical challenges, just like change management. It changes business processes and workflows for those involved in warehouse operations. They need to learn to adhere to new processes and also just generally changing business requirements. So it's important that automation systems will consider future demand for operation, which is not always the case. So there's a lot of different elements at play when we talk about the challenges of implementing this automation because it's quite easy to say you need automation but it's a whole different sort of ball game for those working in logistics having to implement it as well. Can you tell me new things about delivery startups Nia? Okay so in our report we've got a section and it's on our GSCI platform as well which focuses on the more prominent startups that we've identified in the market that offer end-to-end e-commerce fulfillment solutions so that would include sort of picking packing and shipping as their core services um, who have sort of built their networks to facilitate these activities over the years. It's in no way a definitive list, but it's who we've picked out as the most prominent startups in the market. All of them have over $100 million in funding to date. Some of them are, they only offer 3PL e-commerce fulfillment services as a core business model, whilst others offer e-fulfillment alongside last mile or middle mile delivery. But all of them in some way offer how we define e-fulfillment as. From what we can see, funding does seem to have peaked in 2021, especially with capital flowing to later stage companies and later stage rounds. 
there was an interesting article by um, the consultants McKinsey and Co, um, which showed that funding for logistics startups doubled in 2021 compared to 2020. Again, that is sort of with the flurry of e-commerce and this, you know, this massive growth that we were seeing because of COVID and because of lockdowns, as well as sort of capacity constraints and congestion, congestion, sorry, which highlighted the relevance of supply chain resilience. However, when we look forward, when we look at 2022 and when we look at 2023, from the startups that we've analysed, we can see that funding has dipped in the last year. We're expecting that to sort of continue this year as a global recession looms. It, it really remains to be seen how startups might fare. But as we were saying earlier, we've seen a lot of redundancies. Um, we've seen a lot of shares, you know, taking a tumble in some of these startups that we've analysed. So it's really a sort of grey area, I think, in the coming year. And I, it does really depend on the, the macroeconomic environment for how these startups will fare. Again, like I said, maybe the losers of this economic sort of environment that we've got going on at the moment, but again, remains to be seen. Okay, so what interesting moves are we seeing within mergers and acquisitions? Yeah, so when we look at the sort of past few years, growth and consolidation has really sort of run rampant in the e-fulfillment market. We've got this sort of traditional third-party logistics providers who maybe weren't quite equipped to deal with the demands of e-commerce and e-fulfillment. They've they've gone and they've acquired specialist companies, incumbent players like Rider, UPS, Bpost, uh, DHL have all sort of seek to strengthen their e-fulfillment capabilities through inorganic growth. Um, We've also then seen quite an interesting trend where we've got traditional container shippers purchasing more e-fulfillment companies, trying to sort of develop their end-to-end abilities. Maersk and CMACGM, both of those have taken part in some acquisitions over the past year as they sort of foray into e-commerce logistics. And then another interesting part, which sort of ties into what we were talking about earlier, is there has been a lot of acquisitions among startups. So, you know, startups buying other startups. Again, looking forward, this might slow um, as funding has sort of dried up a little bit for those startups. I can't foresee that happening at the same rate in the next year that it has been happening. However, for those larger, more sort of more solidified companies with more money to spend, I, I don't see why MA activity won't continue in the pace that it has been for the past few years, um, especially as e-commerce continues to grow. But yeah, it remains to be seen. And I think it'll be really interesting to see the direction that M&A in this industry takes in the next year. Nia, why should supply chain strategists read this report? It's got some amazing stuff in there about the market size. I think it gives a really good indication of where we expect the market to go. That can be used for sort of, for strategists to sort of plan their next few moves um, there's also some really interest, interesting stuff on trends. What we've been seeing over the past few years, what we expect to sort of keep developing in the future. Things like startups, um, M&A. We've also spoken about, um, you know, Pudo pickup drop off in the last mile element of the market, as well as a general overview of how we think e-commerce retail is going to carry on in the next year. So, yeah, I think overall it gives a really good overview of the market and what we can expect from the market in the coming years. Thank you, Nia. I'll add some of those data points to the show notes so that you can access them easily, as well, of course, the link to the report. Overall, I think there was a lovely mix of data and unbounded curiosity. Thank you, Nia and Ken. Please do visit the show notes to access some of this content, Ken's trends, Nia's report, the survey, of course, and our data platform, GSCI. That's it from me. 
See you next time.